would join with me in going to 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24. The Lord of life and death, that is our title this morning. And I would have you know that this passage and this title was chosen months ago, before there's ever news of the coronavirus and the imminence of that threat here and quarantines and school closings and just the great concern and burden over the spread of viruses and death. That's worth noting because I think it means, number one, the Lord knows what we need before we ever need it. He loves us. He cares for us. He, he knows how to use all things for the good of his people. And in his providence, he would so have it that this is the passage where we are this morning. I think the second thing it means is that what life is really about is always what the Bible is really about. And what the Bible's really about is what life's really about. And so it's something to see in these recent days and weeks, just sport venues shut down, concerts shut down, workplaces shut down, schools shut down, everything shuts down. Because when it's about life and death, it gets really simple. And that's what the Bible really is about. What are we to make of life and death? What are we to make of life after death? Where do we go for comfort, for peace, for assurance in times such as these? So 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24. Let's pray as we go there. Well, Father, we feel it acutely that we need your help. We need you to speak. We need your spirit to help us to understand what you say and to take comfort in what you promise and to find peace in what you have accomplished through your son. We may not be making too little of this virus and sickness and death, but I'm certain that we make way too little of sin and way too little of judgment and wrath. And we may not be making too little of a desire for a cure and vaccinations and something to hold back the wave of sickness and death, but, but I'm certain we make way too little of Christ and of the cross and of the deliverance that he accomplished for us there. And so I would pray for us now that you would help us to make more of him, to be more grieved by sin and the wages of sin, and more hungry for the righteousness that is found only in Christ, more hungry to know him and the power of his resurrection, more eager to be near to him, to trust him, to follow him. So that is our prayer this morning, through your word, by your spirit, in Christ's name, amen. 1 Kings 17, verse 17, after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? 
Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. We live in a time where many scientists work really hard day after day to prolong life, to defeat death, striving to help people carry on forever, as if that would be a good thing. That's what we're trying to do. You know, cryonicists want to freeze and preserve bodies in order to animate them at a later time. Extropians who try to create a perfect society and physical environment that sort of resist the entropy that exists in our bodies and in the universe. There's actually a group called Singulatarian Mind Uploaders. We're trying to find a way to upload your inner self into a computer so that when your body dies, you can be preserved electronically forever. Or transhumanists who seek immortality through diet, through exercise, through transplants, and even through genetic engineering. And it's one of these transhumanists, a man named Faradun Esfandiari, who in an interview in 1990 with Larry King actually said that if you can be around in the year 2030, you will probably become immortal. Because by the year 2030, we would have mastered evolution and learn to defeat the laws of thermodynamics and overcome death. And he died of pancreatic cancer 10 years after saying it. He went to the grave just as 100 billion people went to the grave before him. Death surrounds us. And over time, as we keep living, the circle of death just moves closer and closer in. We've all lost loved ones. We've all tasted a little bit of what grief is. We walk in the valley of the shadow of death, and unless Jesus returns first, we will die. There's no escape. And this truth haunts people. Haunts people. According to Hebrews 2.15, the fear of death subjects all people to lifelong slavery. So the question for us is, is there freedom from this fear of death? Is there any redemption from this lifelong slavery? And scripture declares, yes, there is. The story of Elijah and the widow's son in 1 Kings 17 offers that very kind of hope, that very kind of freedom, and that little picture of redemption to God's people. It proclaims, first of all, that Yahweh is the Lord of life and death. Contrary to Baal, the false god of the Sidonians, who was claimed to be the Lord of life. Or Mot, another god of the Sidonians, who was said to be the Lord of death. And that Baal and Mot were in this fierce power struggle of life and death. What God is declaring through Elijah's ministry is, no, there's one Lord of life and death. Yahweh. The Lord alone is God. 
who gives life, who takes it away and then gives life again. This brings us to our main point for this morning. The Lord alone is God, our only source of life and our only hope in death. The Lord alone is God, our only source of life and our only hope in death. Let's see it unfold in verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. After this means, after Elijah, the widow, and her son have been miraculously fed by God for some period of time in Sidon. There's this famine going on all in the land and around them. And God is preserving them through this flour and this oil that is never running out so that he can feed them miraculously day after day. After that, the son of the woman, the only child of this Sidonian widow, who has already been bereaved of her husband, now faithfully relies on the Lord to provide for her each and every day, her boy falls ill, so ill that he dies. Well, the scripture says no breath was left in him, namely the breath of life departed his body. When the Lord created Adam in Genesis 2-7, the scripture says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So here the Lord is going to withdraw that breath of life, and the boy is going to die. And really naturalism and evolutionary theory cannot comprehend this, can't comprehend the fact that life actually comes from outside nature. It's put into nature. And that death is the final bitter taste of this fallen world under the curse of sin. Romans 5.12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So here death has come once again into the household of this widow. Just think about how quickly the circumstances of life can change. How fast. After receiving this miraculous provision of food day after day, sustaining her, sustaining her son, being set apart for God's particular favor on them, after receiving his grace through God's word to preserve their lives, after believing and trusting in him and receiving all the benefits of that, her son dies. And if you walk with the Lord long enough, you will taste eventually that confusing sequence of events where the Lord gives and then he takes away. The Lord gives triumph and then tragedy. He gives victory, then defeat. I think we're meant to see that just life in God's hands is not neat and tidy and easy and painless. So we're not meant to make light of this. We're not meant to ignore this. We're not meant to put a jolly spin on it. Being loved by God does not make life or death less painful. Ecclesiastes called death an evil that happens to us all. Ecclesiastes 9.3. It is a trouble, a misery, a grief that is a result of sin entering the world. So I want to ask you, do you feel the weight of it? Do you face it? In your own life, the reality of death, the widow feels it. She's going to force the prophet to feel it. Look at what she says next. And she said to Elijah, have you, what have you against me, O man of God? 
You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. That to this point, Elijah's presence has been a source of life and provision and blessing to the widow. And it's now a source of grief and loss and confusion. So she's going to say three really important things here that I think are things that we say to God when we suffer. That we're tempted to cry out to him and say to him when we suffer. The first is, what have you against me, O man of God? And when trouble comes, especially death of a loved one, especially a child, we often interpret the motivations of God as adversarial rather than redemptive. Though she speaks to the prophet, she's actually speaking to the Lord, whether she knows it or not. Because it's just safer to say, what have you against me, O man of God, than say, what have you against me, O God? What do you hold against me? That's how it feels to her. Lord, that you would kill my son. And the Lord would say to her, I'm for you, not against you. The Lord's proven this to her. Day after day, time after time. But suffering just tends to expose all the ways that we really don't understand the way the Lord works. Sometimes he chastens us, which is him being for us. Sometimes he uses trials to sanctify us, which is him being for us. Sometimes he uses suffering to reveal himself to us, which is him being for us. And that only the word of God can ever explain and help us understand how he works through trial through pain, through suffering, through death. We can't just look at the circumstances and figure it out. That's why the nation of Israel, when they're in the wilderness and they're brought to a place where there's no food, they're going to say, God, you just, there weren't ways to die in Egypt. You brought us out here to die. Brings them to the Red Sea. Egypt's armies come over. Oh, there's just not enough graves in Egypt. You had to bring us out here to die. After all he'd proven, after all he'd accomplished, That's what circumstances of trial and suffering tend to tempt us to do is misinterpret how God works and to think he's against me when all along he's saying I'm for you. Second thing she says is you've come to bring my sin to remembrance. The other thing that we do when trouble comes is we tend to interpret the reasons of God as punishment for our sin rather than opportunity for revelation of himself. We misinterpret the reasons of God as punishment for our sin rather than opportunity for him to reveal himself. There's a little legalist in all of us thinking that God relates to us through what we do and don't deserve based on work we do or don't do or sin we do or don't commit. There's sort of this gospel or this prosperity gospel preacher in all of us that thinks if we just don't sin, we won't suffer. And if suffering enters into our life, then it must be because of our sin that God's punishing. And while there are times when the Lord does discipline us for our good, the punitive use of trials to somehow keep our sinfulness fresh in our minds is just not how he relates to his forgiven children. And so suffering often exposes how we interpret life and circumstances with ourselves in the middle rather than God in the middle. Death comes, this must be about me. This must be about what I've done or not done rather than about God and what he is doing. 
In John 9, you'll remember the story when Jesus is walking past a blind man with his disciples, and the disciples are going to say to him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Like, okay, we know it's either his mom and dad or it's him, because the only reason he would be born blind is that somebody sinned. We just need you to tell us which one, Jesus, him or his parents. And Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's a really important statement. Not his sin, not parents' sin, but that the works of God may be displayed. Whose fault is it? Jesus says, not relevant. What's God's purpose in it? Jesus says, supremely relevant. So it is here with this Sidonian widow. Whose fault? Not relevant. God's purpose? Truly relevant. And then the third thing she says is to cause the death of my son. That when trouble comes, we often look for someone to blame rather than someone to trust. We look for someone to hold responsible rather than someone to rely upon through the trial. We look for someone to shout at horizontally rather than cry out to and trust vertically. We'd rather be angry at someone than just sad, lamenting at the trouble of life, humbled before the Lord, dependent upon him. So when trials come, the word of the Lord is trying to help us see God is redeemer, not adversary. God is revealer, not punisher. God is to be relied upon, not ignored while we look for someone to blame for everything that's happening. Just look at the world. Listen to what's going on around us and you'll see it. Nobody's thinking, how do we more trust in God today? But who do we blame? Who do we scream at? Rather than who do we pray to and seek mercy from? God for us, not against us. The Lord near to us, not far. The Lord to be trusted and worshipped not resented. Verse 19, And Elijah said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. For some reason, Elijah is going to take the boy to a secluded place where only God can see and hear and I think take him to his room to sort of show us something about how he is identifying with this boy and this boy with him. And the boy's mother is left to wait and to trust in the Lord and whatever his prophet might do. And Elijah cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Notice the the prophet doesn't resort to a magic trick or sort of a mystical series of incantations. He just cries out to God. He goes straight to the Lord in prayer, and it's personal for him. Notice that, O Lord, my God. Loss does not repel Elijah from Yahweh. It drives him to Yahweh. The whole thing in Elijah's mind is from the Lord. Have you brought calamity upon the widow by killing her son? Notice there's no shallow excuses that God does not 
have a hand in the death of people, even the death of his own people. No attempts to console himself or the widow with the notion that this is out of God's control, which is of no comfort when your child dies. It may taste sweeter on the lips, but that is bitter to the soul. So Elijah has none of that. Just honest, confident, personal recognition that God is sovereign over everything. And that this painful circumstance is the result of his providence. His hand guiding events. Saying, Lord, you have brought this. I really think if we want to live faithfully and peacefully, steadfastly in this world, then there's something we really do have to accept about God, about the Lord. It's number one that he governs everything. He guides everything. Even life, even death, and he's perfectly just, perfectly good, perfectly holy in how he governs it. He's always near, always for, always with his children as he does it. That's why Job can say after losing ten children in a day, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's going to lose everything. And he knew that the Lord was behind it. So he's going to run to the Lord for answers. He's going to wait upon the Lord for help. He's going to worship the Lord as God in the process. Well, that's what Elijah's doing. Verse 21, then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. He stretched himself upon the child. I think it's an act of association and substitution. My life for his life. His life for my life. And he's going to do it three times as a symbol of confirmation. This boy really is dead. They really are dependent upon the God, on the God to deliver. And the number seven often in the Bible, you've heard, is, is the number of completion, symbolizes completion. Well, three is sort of the number that symbolizes confirmation. In the presence of two or three witnesses, a fact will be confirmed. Or on the account of those witnesses. So three times he's going to cover the boy. Verse 22, and the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. It wasn't that Elijah did some specific thing that brought him to life. It's that he's doing things symbolically with meaning, but that it's going to be the Lord who listens to the voice of Elijah, the Lord who brings life Back to the boy again. It's an amazing statement. Not only that the boy is brought to life, for that's really a small thing to the Lord, but that he would listen to the voice of Elijah. His Lord's not obligated to hear Elijah. The Lord's not constrained by the will or the words of the prophet, but the words of Elijah align with the will of God. And so the Lord listens to Elijah and raises the boy. And I would even argue it's the Lord who's guiding Elijah all through this. It's the Lord who's actually governing his prophet and what he's doing and saying. And the Lord in hearing answers and just brings life back to this boy. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Not your son was living all along. But look, your son has been brought from death to life. He was dead, but now he lives. See? I think what a sight that would be for this mother to see. Here's his, her child who was dead breathing again. 
speaking again, laughing again, relating again, alive again. Just think about it a minute. Nobody can do that. All the money and all the time and all the intellect we've put into that happening, we've never been able to do it. Bring life from the dead. And especially to bring the dead to life with words. Where God just speaks and he raises up. Verse 24, and the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God. And that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. And this is convincing to her. It should be convincing to us. The act of resurrection proves, first of all, just the power of God. He can raise the dead. He can do what nature can't do. What no one in nature can do. What no one apart from him can do. What we've never even come too close to creating or making happen is resurrecting the dead. And usually when it happens in the movies, it's really ugly, right? It's usually a horror film, but it's still just fantasy. Only God can bring life from death. And here he is, he does it. And what hope this is to give us? That the Lord God is more powerful, mightier, greater than death itself. It proves, second of all, the word of God. Whatever his word says is the truth. Even death has to obey. The widow makes this connection. She says, the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. What hope that gives to us that God, not death, has the final word. And that all the signs and wonders of Scripture are not there just for their own sake, but in many ways to validate the truth of God's word. To prove the power of God's word. Remember in Luke 5 when when Jesus is going to forgive the sins of the paralytic man. They're going to bring a paralytic. He's going to see their faith and say, your sins are forgiven. Well, the Pharisees hear this and here's their response. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, Jesus responds, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man stood up and picked up his bed and went home. And the ultimate point wasn't to make him walk, but to prove Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. To prove this is God in the flesh. Because you're right, only God has the authority to forgive sins. And I just did it. So the physical miracle makes a spiritual and physical point. So in the same way, when Elijah raises the widow's son, it's not just about giving him physical life to spare a grieving mom. But to reveal something about the Lord. Something about his plan for salvation. Something about our true need for him. The boy lives, but someday he will die again. Have you thought about that? He's still in a cursed body. Still in a cursed world. No safer from the fear of death than before. This story is not here to give us hope in not dying. Or in continually being resuscitated. How miserable would that be? To just have to keep coming back. Those who lose you to keep grieving losing you. 
It's not here to give us that hope, but it's here in anticipation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who would, like Elijah, raise the sons of widows from the dead, but then, unlike Elijah, do much more, offer much more. Luke 7, verse 11, we read this this morning already. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Strange statement at a funeral, isn't it? Don't weep. Don't cry. Why not? Because I have compassion on you. So for what he's about to do. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. Jesus just speaks, and the boy rises up. Then notice Jesus gave him to his mother. That's the language of 1 Kings 17. Gave him to his mother. Everyone realizes this is the work of a great prophet. God is visiting his people. If only even they all knew what that meant in the moment. And then Jesus is going to tell the disciples of John the Baptist right after this. Listen to what he's going to say. He's going to say, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Just that phrase, the dead are raised up. You all saw me, I just did this. Now go tell John, you saw me do this. And they are to know, okay, this is the work of Elijah and Elisha. There's three resurrections in the Old Testament. Two are associated with Elisha, one with Elijah that we're reading this morning. Those are the only three. So when Jesus shows up and starts raising people from the dead, they're meant to see not just, okay, God is with us, but the fulfillment of all that Old Testament prophecy is here. The one that those prophets were anticipating is on the scene. Because in the very next chapter, he's going to raise Jairus' daughter in Luke 8.41 and say, I say to you, daughter, arise. She's going to stand up. And so everyone's meant to realize that the Lord of life and death is here. The one Elijah anticipates is here. The work of Elijah is the shadow. And now here's Jesus, the substance. Elijah's the prelude. He's the main event. We're going to see this most clearly in John 11 with the death of Lazarus. After Lazarus dies, Jesus will say to Martha, Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. See, Elijah never said that. Never said anything like that. So whatever acts he's doing in bringing the son of the widow back to life is just, again, a picture a foreshadowing, a prelude to the one who will come who's going to say, I am the resurrection and the life. And there's four things I want us to draw from these words of Jesus in light of even the passage we've read this morning. Four sort of concluding 
points that I want us to take away. One is Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That Jesus is saying, I don't just resurrect people like Elijah did once. I am the resurrection. I am the very means of it. I am the reason for it. Even the reason Elijah was able to do it. Because he wasn't just all of a sudden the resurrection and the life. He had always been the resurrection and the life. So we see Christ and we're meant to reinterpret and see into the Old Testament the reason stuff is happening. And not just I give life, but I am the life. He's not a mere carrier of life. He is the source of life. He's not just like a postal worker delivering mail, delivering life mail. I know he is the life. And he's going to give that life, ironically, through his death. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, they're humans, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. His death delivers you life. And so at the cross, saying that Jesus tasted death for us, that he went to the grave in our place and absorbed the very consequences of our sin, the very judgment we deserved, but then he rose on the third day because there was no sin in him. He had done no wrong. And to pave the way for sinners like us to be forgiven. Sinners like us to receive his life. And this is why if your faith is in Jesus, you don't have to fear death. Christ tasted and conquered it on your behalf. You're free from that lifelong slavery. Because Jesus redeemed you from that slavery. So death can't hold you any longer. Death doesn't have claim to you any longer. Because Christ took it for you, conquered it for you. And now, though you may die, yet you shall live. Second of all, Jesus is the resurrection to new spiritual life right now. That when you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, God makes you spiritually alive in Christ right now. Ephesians 2 verse 4, God being rich in mercy... Because of his, the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Colossians 2.13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So that when Jesus died on the cross, you died with him. Colossians 3 says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3. So just as Elijah covered the boy, so Christ covers you. Just as Elijah took on the boy's physical sickness, so Christ takes on your spiritual sickness. The Spirit unites you to Christ so that everything Christ accomplished in his resurrection is yours and imparted to you. 
And just as God imparted physical life to the boy through the symbolic kind of union with Elijah, so he imparts spiritual life to you through actual union with his son. And so again, see how the physical miracle points to that spiritual miracle. That's why Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we can take comfort in that as his children, comfort as brothers and sisters in Christ that we've been crucified with him. And now his life is in us. So now no matter what happens to the physical body, that will never change. Third thing he's saying here is that Jesus is the resurrection to new physical life later in the future. If Jesus does not return first, we will all physically die. But if you die with your faith in Jesus, as he said in John eleven twenty five, though you die, yet shall you live. Your soul will depart to be with the Lord. Your body will go into the ground and decay. And then on a day in the future, Christ will return to the earth and your physical substance will be raised and glorified. And become immortal. First Thessalonians 4.16. The dead in Christ will rise. And death will give way to victory. And the seed of death will now give birth to a new immortal body by the power of God. And so the life Jesus offers is not a continual waking up from death. To come back to life in this world but to new life in a new body, in a new heavens and earth where death will be no more, where sickness will be no more, where suffering and misery will be no more. So the physical miracle of Elijah points to that future physical miracle. And then fourthly, Jesus is the resurrection to glorified life forever. So Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the resurrection to new spiritual life now. Jesus is the resurrection to new physical life later. And Jesus is the resurrection to glorified life forever. When our bodies are raised on that last day and reunited to our souls in glory, it will be a resurrection into the presence of God, forgiven and reconciled forever. Never to be cast out. Never to lose. Because resurrection itself truly should be of no comfort to you. Just being raised up should be of no comfort to anyone because everyone who dies will be raised. But not all will be raised to life, to everlasting life. The prophet Daniel speaks of a day when those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So the resurrection will not be comforting on that day to those who die now apart from Christ. All will be raised, but some to condemnation and a second death, a death that never ends, a death that keeps going. 
According to Revelation 20, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Where the fire doesn't die out and the worm doesn't cease. But then of those united to Christ in this life, the scripture says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him. And forever. You just go, whoa. Over such, the second death has no power. But Elijah is going to raise a boy from the first death in order to prove that God has the power over the first death and then point to Christ whose victory over the first death will also give you victory over the second death. That's incredible. Elijah is going to raise this boy from the first death to prove that God has power over the first death. And then prepare us for Christ who's going to come and be victorious not only over the first death, but through his death over the second death. So those who trust in him, though they die, yet they shall live. So our response to Jesus in light of this should go much further than the widow's response to Elijah. Notice what she says to Elijah in verse 24. Now I know that you are the man of God, a man of God. And that the word of the Lord is in your mouth, or in your mouth is truth. So she's going to say to him. Well, in light of all that, in light of what we know of Christ, what now should we say to Jesus? Well, now I know that you are the Son of God, the Word made flesh, the resurrection and the life, and that salvation comes only through you. Now I know it. Because not only did you raise people from the dead, you were raised from the dead. Though you died and were there three days, you were raised. You have proven that you are who you say you are. You have proven that the word of God is in your mouth and that you are the word of God made flesh, that you are the resurrection and the life. It's why our faith in Jesus is not sort of just an emotional faith based on how it feels it's not just a symbolic face based on okay his death and resurrection symbolizes something no it's it's in the fact that he actually died and that he was actually raised and that people actually witnessed both his death and his resurrection our faith is in real events that God did in history through his son so the woman says now I know you're a man of God, that the word of God or the Lord in your mouth is truth. Well, we can say, look at, okay, now we know Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, we can have life in his name. So the question for us is the question Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? And do you live based on the truth of it? Do you believe it and have life in his name? And once you have life in his name, does that affect the way you think, the way you feel, the way you relate to the world in which you live, the way you respond to, to viruses and everything else? It really is amazing to see the sobriety, the fear, the massive life changes that people throughout the world are undertaking in response to the coronavirus. Across the whole world. And you ask why. So, well, because it, 
carries a high rate of infection. And because it has such a high mortality rate, right now like around 3%. And because of that, it grips the whole world. Well, sin has a 100% infection rate. And its mortality rate is 100%. It kills everyone. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's not to minimize the danger of the coronavirus, but to call attention to just how much we minimize the danger of sin. It has spread to everyone because all sin and its death rate is 100%. The wages of sin is death every time for everyone. Either you die for it or somebody else dies in your place for it. You just think, who among us would just sort of glibly walk into a room of people infected with the coronavirus? And just, not mine, just walk on in. 100 people in there. And yet, how often will we glibly just wander into wickedness? Without a second thought. Think, who of us would just enter into a hospital with a thousand infected patients and start rolling around on their beds? And drinking from cups, just laying around? And yet we would gossip and entertain gossip. We would slander and entertain slander. We would look at porn or run to drugs or covet and steal or argue and fight or just feed upon the kinds of music, the kind of movies, the kind of media that we know just arouses our flesh to sin, arouses our flesh to doubt God, to transgress his word. I think we fear viruses more than we fear God. I think we misunderstand what death really is, what really causes it, what the danger really is. I mean, just imagine if we respond to the reality of sin against a holy God with the same kind of urgency and gravity that we've responded to the coronavirus. Think about if the world took God that seriously and even it's convicting for me this has been the conviction for me over the last days I've meditated on this text I just had to encounter okay do I take sickness more seriously than sin am I taking greater efforts to distance myself from physical contagions than to distance myself from the sin that wages war in my members and against me But even better, and what if someone announced today that a cure for the coronavirus has been found and proven to work every time? Imagine if that was announced. It hit the news. We found it 100% works 100% every time as a vaccination, as a cure. How many of us would run to that remedy? And once we found it really is the remedy, how many of us would tell everyone we loved about it? Everyone we knew. There's a remedy for the sickness. Go get it. And yet God sent his son into the world, the only man to never sin, the only man who did not deserve death, who became sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, who absorbed the penalty for our sins so that we could receive from him the rewards of his righteousness, so that we could be cleansed, so we could be made holy, so that we could stand before the Lord declared righteous, 
so that we could be reconciled to God and redeemed? Should we not run to him and cling to him as if our lives depended on it, as if our souls depended on it? The word of God proclaims he is the cure to the sickness of your sin. Jesus is the Lord of life and death. Jesus is the only way to life beyond the grave. So look to him and live. Believe upon him and be forgiven. Run to him and be delivered from the sting of death. Delivered from the fear of death. Delivered from even the smell of death. Run to him that you can live, that you can dwell in the presence of God forever. And then once you're there, stay there. Cling there. Trust. Follow. Abide. Rest. This story of Elijah and the world was never meant to make us hope in not dying or in continually coming back. But in this one who has come and lived and died and been raised on our behalf, and in him is the life. And by faith in him, union with him, spiritual life is imparted now, but also the promise and the hope of new physical life later. So no matter what virus lands on you, no matter what takes you out in this world, yet you die, though you shall still live. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would give us hearts to believe this news. That we would be sobered by our weakness, our frailty, by death that surrounds us, sickness that surrounds us. And yet, we would not fear. Because you have so loved us that you sent your son into the world to become sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yet not us, but Christ through us. Yet not us, but Christ working his power out through us. May we be a people who live at peace. Who live humbly. Who live out of the fear of you. Reverence for you. Worship toward you. Dependence upon you. May we be a people who see you over everything and how you're working everything for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.